The information conveyed in this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not substitute for clinical advice or consultation. This is Dr. Mehul Mankad, and you're listening to Episode 4 of the Psychiatry and Law Podcast, Medical Malpractice. I'm Bill Reed. I'm a psychiatrist here in Texas. I do a lot of forensic work and teach at three of our Texas medical schools. Dr. Reed, which of those schools are they? There are several in Texas now. There sure are. Um, I teach primarily at Dell Medical School of the University of Texas at Austin. I'm also a clinical professor at Texas A&M College of Medicine and at Texas Tech University Medical Center in Lubbock. Oh my goodness, that is quite a distance in a large state. Thank goodness for telemedicine. The topic we're going to discuss today is medical malpractice as it relates to psychiatry and feels related to psychiatry. I've heard a lot over the years of the four Ds. That's D is in the letter David. Why do you think people keep coming back to the four Ds? And do you think that's still a relevant way of looking at malpractice? I'm happy to, to say that. Let me say first that, as everyone knows, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not giving any legal advice here, but... Uh, I do enough with lawyers that I sure wouldn't want anybody to accuse me of giving legal advice. The four Ds uh, are frequently taught as the four elements, required elements, for a malpractice suit to be brought against a physician uh, or certainly to be won against a physician. Uh, They include, first, establishing that the physician had a duty to his or her patient Usually that means having a doctor-patient relationship that creates the duty, the duty to be an adequate physician with that patient. That's not the only way that one can create that duty, however. Um, there, There are some other ways that aren't very common that come up in malpractice suits. The second thing that the lawyer... Could I ask you a quick question about duty, Dr. Reed? I struggle with this myself when I think about a new patient. Is there a time in the initial evaluation where I'm supposed to take the patient aside and say, now you and I have a doctor-patient relationship, and going forward, I have a duty to you. Or, Dr. Reed, is it your opinion that the duty is more implicit and implied when the patient steps into the room? The duty is something that the law considers. I think it would be unduly formal and and perhaps even off-putting for doctors to say that every time they see a new patient. Uh, The point is for the doctor to realize that he or she has a legal duty to perform in a certain way uh, with patients or with with people that are seen as his or her patients. Um, It's not a a duty that involves the criminal law. You don't go to jail for not meeting your duty. But it's a duty that's established in the civil law and is particularly relevant to things like malpractice cases. So what you're saying is that there's something that is implied. So what if I was on call and I worked in a small group practice? If I took a phone call for one of my colleague's patients, or maybe I was in an inpatient unit and rounding on the weekend as the weekend relief attending, one might argue that I have a duty to those patients. Sure. You almost certainly do have a duty, and that's, that's kind of uh, what I meant when I said that a formal doctor-patient relationship is not always required. A duty to a patient can sometimes be established merely by taking a phone call and uh, giving someone a medical opinion about their call. 
uh, even to say, take two aspirin and call me in the morning. It can also be established um, by not being available. For example, if you were on call and the hospital couldn't find you and a, doc- and a patient had a substantial uh, tragedy because they couldn't find you, uh, then you might still have enough duty to that individual uh, that you could at least be accused of being liable for the tragedy, and they might win. Okay, so there are a few more Ds to go. What's the next one? The second D is a little harder to make into a D, and, and we say involves a dereliction of your duty to the patient. That is a breach in that duty that makes your care in some way inadequate. It might be a big deal or it might be a small deal, but a breach is a breach. The third, it's a little out of order, but the third one is usually called damage. That is that your breach of your duty or your dereliction of that duty caused a damage to the patient. Sometimes when we breach a duty, we don't do exactly the right thing. Uh, Nothing bad happens. Matter of fact, most of the time, nothing bad happens. But if the patient is damaged, uh, then that fulfills that third D that may create a malpractice scenario. So something bad has to happen to the patient. Something bad has to happen to the patient or occasionally to someone else in order to meet the requirements for a malpractice suit. Now, I've read that malpractice is a little bit different in different states based on local case law and statutes. Coming back to the dereliction and damage side of the four Ds, in my state of North Carolina, the dereliction can come from doing the wrong thing or not doing the right thing. Sure. A lawyer who is evaluating a situation to see whether he or she wants to file a malpractice suit uh, will be aware of that, uh, and juries are aware of that. Uh, There's a certain amount of logic in this. How does it sound to a jury, Uh, not just does it meet the requirements of malpractice, which is a matter of law for the judge to decide about, but how does it sound to the jury as a matter of facts for the jury to find? Okay, so we've got a duty to the patient. We've got dereliction of that duty. And we have damages that happen as a result of the dereliction of that duty. What's the fourth D, Dr. Reed? The fourth one, and the most important one, the most difficult one for most cases and for most lawyers, is causation. And the way we kind of gerrymander a D into there is we we say the damage is directly caused by the dereliction. But the idea is what the lawyers call causation. If I write the wrong prescription for you, I may or may not negligently write the wrong prescription, but it's a breach. If the damage is not very big, that is, you get to the pharmacy and realize it's the wrong prescription, and you may be irritated with me, but it didn't do any any harm, then there's not much damage. The next point regarding the, the causation is if you take the wrong medication, does something really bad happen as a result? There must be a pretty much unbroken thread between the dereliction of duty and the damage that's caused. So that, for example, if a doctor does something wrong in February and the patient dies in June, a lawyer must draw a pretty much unbroken causative thread between the February event and the June death or the June uh, damage. Lots of things may have happened in the interim. 
the patient may have seen other doctors. Uh, the patient may have uh, driven a car off a cliff. There are lot, lots of things that could happen during that period. And if it can't be shown that the dereliction actually caused in a significant way the damage, then the malpractice suit is almost certainly going to be unsuccessful and probably won't be filed in the first place. So what you're saying is there, there seems to be a necessity for the bad outcome, whatever it is, to either be close in time or related through a series of events that can be linked to each other for the fourth D to be met. That's right. And the most important part of it is that it's directly and causatively related. There are things that indeed don't show up for three or four months. Uh, but in the case of, of psychiatry in particular, most of the time, time is, is a factor. The important thing is can it be shown to be related? A second part of that, and it depends on the, the jurisdiction, usually the state in which the event occurs, is sometimes there can be several causes, and even if the doctor's dereliction of duty is only one of the causes, the doctor or the doctor's insurance company may need to be responsible for some or all, depending on the jurisdiction, of the cost of the damages. Is that the term uh, contributory negligence? Is that what you're talking about? Yes. Terms like contributory negligence or comparative negligence show up in different ways in different jurisdictions. In a few jurisdictions, plaintiff's lawyer has to show the doctor's negligence was a primary cause or a certain percentage of the cause. It varies. And these are, of course, legal issues that don't have too much to do with the way doctors practice or the way, the way doctors should practice. Our purpose, I know yours and mine, is really to practice well, and practicing well is really the best way to avoid malpractice. Gotcha. Well, that, that makes sense. So to summarize, the way that you put the four Ds in the order that you, you gave them to us, duty, dereliction, damage, and direct— and the, the way that I often hear them spoken are uh, dereliction of duty directly leading to damages. But I, I, like, I like the order that you put them. Well, the way you just did it makes more, uh, makes more temporal sense. And if, if that's what it takes to remember it, that's just fine. Now, moving on, I wanted to ask you about this idea of a standard of care. Uh, is that something that you could help us understand? Sure. The standard of care is really what we're talking about when we talk about the physician's duty. And by the way, physicians aren't the only ones that can be sued for malpractice. Other mental health professionals, clinical professionals, or for that matter, accountants and lawyers can be uh, sued for malpractice or can commit malpractice. The standard of care is what one's duty requires him or her to do. Practicing outside the standard of care in a negligent fashion is what's talked about when we talk about the dereliction of that duty. Sometimes we practice outside the standard, but wasn't done negligently. And occasionally, of course, we do things that are uh, not according to a textbook, but for all the right reasons with a patient. The standard of care in most jurisdictions, really almost all jurisdictions, is a national standard of care rather than a local one. Lots of doctors misunderstand that. And they refer to things like the community standard, or they think that the standard is different in a small town uh, as opposed to a large city, or different in the rural community as opposed to a university setting. That's not true in most jurisdictions, and here's why. 
the patient is entitled uh, to adequate care, no matter where he or she is, from the physician uh, that's consulted. The standard of care doesn't require excellent care from anybody. The standard of care requires, in general, adequate care. And the definition in most places is something like that care that's given by reasonable physicians under similar circumstances. That leads to some interesting concepts. It means that a physician seeing a doctor in Marble Falls, Texas, which has a population of about 10,000 people, is entitled to the same general level of care as one seeing a physician at Dell Medical School in Austin. The only exception I can think of right now is if one doctor or the other or one hospital or the other represents to the public that their care is above adequate. For example, I had a case in Houston many years ago in which a medical center specified in its advertising that they gave excellent care. And when they were sued for malpractice for a particular act, uh, the jury was allowed to consider whether or not that care was as advertised. Now, that's not the standard of care, but it means that there are circumstances under which your care doesn't simply have to be adequate in order for you to uh, to be sued. Well, it sounds like, Dr. Reed, that, that you're saying that uh, the standard of care is the floor above which all reasonable healthcare providers or physicians should be practicing. The standard of care is not the ceiling uh, that is the uh, the real the gold standard, for example. And since the word gold standard has the word standard in it, I think people might get confused. Boy, that's a great way to to say it. And I'm I'm going to steal that from you the next time I talk with a group of residents. It's not a gold standard. It's a standard of adequacy. And the general definition in most jurisdictions is that care expected to be given by reasonable physicians under similar circumstances. That doesn't mean that if a group of otherwise reasonable physicians wants to do something wrong, that they're now practicing within standard of care because several of them do it. doesn't mean that at all. Here, here's another question I have about standard of care that, that I've wondered about. Um, let's say you know, I'm treating a patient for major depressive disorder, and the, the primary care doctor down the hall is treating a different patient for major depressive disorder, in your opinion, are we held to the same standard of care? Does it have to do with the treatment of the condition, or does it have to do with our own background and education? That's a great question. It has to do with the condition and the fact that the person who sees the patient represents to the patient that he or she, the physician, can treat what the patient uh, is is seeing him for. That's just fine. But that primary care physician has to treat the patient to the same standard as you and I, psychiatrists, do. It's easier to understand if you think about it from the other direction. If I, a psychiatrist, decide to help diagnose or, or treat a patient's hypertension or even refill their hypertension medication, then I'm suddenly practicing primary care or internal medicine And the standard of care for that is not some odd psychiatrist's standard of care for for hypertensive treatment, but it's the internal medicine standard of care for hypertensive treatment. The same works the other way. The physician has two, uh, two options. For example, the primary care physician has two options. He or she can say, I can treat this and go ahead and treat it. 
and the patient has a, a perfect right to expect that the physician is being adequate and honest. The second option is to say, I'm going to call for help, I'm going to get a consultation, I'm going to do a referral, and in the meantime, I'm going to protect this patient as best I can until I can get the patient to the specialist. Well, you, you bring up a very good point. It sounds like, at least uh, around the, the places I've worked, psychiatrists are becoming more and more uh, responsible, at least in the eyes of the healthcare system, for taking care of what may be considered mild or moderate primary care health conditions. And so if we see a patient, and in your example, if I refill their antihypertensive medication, or if I start them on an antihypertensive medication, then I have to be held to the same standard as family medicine docs, internal medicine docs, those kinds of folks. That's right. And I think that that's uh, something that every physician uh, should be aware of. In, in the case you're describing, uh, we certainly are physicians and we wish to retain our physicianhood and, and we're licensed to practice medicine of all kinds, really. There's no special license for psychiatry, just like there's no special license for brain surgery. If we try to do things outside our specialty, we do it, in a sense, at our own peril. We're being good physicians, perhaps, but we really have to practice adequately within those other specialties. Uh, the same goes in the other direction. Uh, some decades ago, the American Psychiatric Association very much approved of primary care physicians taking over the care of most depressed and anxious, et cetera, patients in the country. We knew that we didn't have enough psychiatrists to go around, and that's still true today. And so there's effort to educate and improve and, and uh, be nice to primary care physicians who help out psychiatric patients. What we perhaps didn't consider enough back then, and what lawyers and juries do consider and the public considers, the patient is entitled to that standard of care. Uh, the patient says, Dr. Jones, uh, I have this depression or this hypertension. And if Dr. Jones says, let's treat it this way, uh, the patient is not the one who is responsible for deciding about the referral or not. Uh, it's the doctor who's responsible for that. And lawyers, juries, and the public believe it that way. Okay. Well, sticking with our own specialty of psychiatry, are there particular conditions that lead to claims that are more common for psychiatrists as compared to other specialties? Sure. And the really important one, the, the, the big dog, uh, the elephant in the room is suicide. Suicide far and away is the most common cause of action, the most common reason uh, for psychiatrists uh, being sued for malpractice. Dr. Reed, what are some of the other common reasons that malpractice claims can be filed against psychiatrists? Things like side effects of our medications. In fact, our medications really have far fewer side effects than those of most other specialties. Uh, the side effects are not particularly damaging until you get to things like tardidyskinesia or metabolic syndrome. And there are very few cases of malpractice allegations involving, for example, tardidyskinesia. Uh, we worry about it greatly clinically, and we should worry about it. Occasionally, things like metabolic syndrome or uh, malignant catatonia come up, but they're a a tiny part of the malpractice suits against psychiatrists. Another one that comes up all the time, and I like to, to say has a lot of smoke but not much fire nowadays, is reporting about or injury to third parties from violence. Nowadays, 
everybody's heard of Tarasoff in California, and every state has some level of case law or legislation about the extent to which physicians can be held responsible for damage to third parties in various cases, including violence. Those cases rarely come up. Every once in a while they do, and sometimes they come up as violence cases. Sometimes they come up in terms of someone who leaves a hospital and has an automobile accident, but they're a relatively small part of the malpractice scene. I often get asked about things like confidentiality, violating HIPAA, or trying to get information from a third party about a a new patient. Uh, Those things are tiny parts of the malpractice picture, and I always uh, recommend to residents and colleagues that they do things like getting corroborative information in the interest of the patient and do what they think is clinically appropriate rather than worrying about being sued. A final one that gets lots of news when it happens, but is actually quite rare in the malpractice field, is sexual boundary violations. We address that in great detail in our training programs and our ethics committees. Malpractice insurance companies decades ago stopped paying for allegations of sexual boundary violations, in part because that having sex with a patient is not practice. These things may occur, but they tend to be more ethical violations, losing one's license, or even getting uh, criminal charges in Texas, rather than malpractice issues. A few malpractice carriers will pay for the doctor's defense, but they won't pay for the damage. You know, it occurs to me that there's another group that I, I hadn't thought about as a frequent cause for claims, but I certainly am asked about by the residents that I work with, when they are working in the emergency room or inpatient settings and a patient has to be detained involuntarily because in the opinion of the clinicians, the patient is at imminent or immediate risk of harm to self or others. Uh, Sometimes those patients contest their involuntary holds that are placed on them, and then some of those patients threaten legal action. Yes, they do from time to time. I've seen in over 30 years of doing this a handful, and I'm talking about two, three, or four cases of lawsuits that were actually filed related to negligent detention, if you want to call it that, uh, an involuntary commitment or detention that the patient says damaged him or her and tried to sue the doctor or the hospital. Two things come to mind. One is every state that I know of has a rule, a a rule with the force of law or a law that describes how such a detention can be done. So the first thing one does is educate the residents about how in their state that should be done. And if they follow that rule, they are protected. They may still get sued, but they won't be successfully sued and a good lawyer won't, won't take the case. The second thing that comes to mind is detaining the person in good faith. That is, you're doing it for the good of the patient and or the protection of others, but there has to be a a mental illness issue in there. You can't just hold somebody uh, someplace because you think they're dangerous, for example. But a physician does it in good faith and documents the heck out of that. Just document that you did it for the following reasons, A, B, and C. In my view, there is very little danger of being sued, much less successfully sued. Now, I've heard, I've I've heard some attending psychiatrists say to those same residents, well, uh, which lawsuit would you rather risk, 
a flimsy one based on procedural technicalities or inappropriate uh, discharge of a patient from the ER who was known to be at risk of harm to self. Absolutely. It was known or should have been known to be at risk. Uh, absolutely. And um, I say that to, to residents, too, about different, different things. I think that's a very good way to see it. Uh, it. You try very hard not to let other people box you in when you're trying to do the right thing and, and trying to practice well. Now, getting into the weeds a little bit, uh, and this is more in the domain of a maybe a forensic psychiatrist who, who works in the expert witness domain, some people make a, a difference uh, or, or see a difference between this idea of errors in judgment uh, versus errors of fact. Is that something you could enlighten us about? I've heard that brought up, and I, th I think you talk about this a bit. We are rarely successfully sued for exercising our judgment. We are more often successfully sued for either if a clinician documents the reasons for his or her actions or inactions and, and documents the idea that a judgment process was involved, it's very hard for a plaintiff's lawyer to get a jury to penalize that doctor. So you're saying that if you kind of show your hand, if you're playing an open hand in poker and you explain why you did what you did, you weigh the alternatives, you describe the risks and benefits, that that goes over well in the documentation and that that would help if something bad happens afterwards. Sure. I often say that whoever once said don't write very much in the chart or they'll hang you with it, was an idiot. <laughs> the real point, and I've heard this from many plaintiff's lawyers, is that if you don't document that thought process, document your pros and cons and what you considered and something about your reasoning, then that leaves things open to question. So if you take the time to write several sentences about what you're thinking before that decision, particularly if it's an important decision, that closes up that hole and everybody knows what you were thinking, and you were thinking in good faith, trying to practice well. Doctors are rarely penalized for trying to practice well. Well, that's reassuring. I, I've been asked periodically to show up at a variety of gatherings of physicians or other healthcare providers and, and give a talk on how to not get sued. And that, that sort of title makes me nervous personally. Um, and I, I shy away from giving those kinds of talks, and I know other people are probably much better at it. Are there strategies or, or tips that you could share with those listening to limit uh, their risks? Well, actually there are. And the first one we've mentioned a couple of times, and that's just two words, practice well. I don't like the idea of defensive medicine. I think we nowadays have to do it to some extent, and I think we all experience that when we go to our own doctor's. But the first thing is to practice well, to practice in good faith. The second is to document things assiduously. Write down the, the way you're thinking about things, what you're considering, and the way you thought in order to arrive at a decision. That sometimes doesn't take more than a sentence or two, but it's a, it's a whole lot more than simply writing no SI slash HI about, about suicide risk or suicidal ideation, for example. Three other things come to mind. Never change the medical record except in a way that is completely acceptable. It doesn't happen all that often, but every once in a while, a case comes up in which there's been some sort of tragedy 
And after the fact, someone, occasionally the physician, sometimes someone else, tries to change the record or inappropriately construe the record in some other way. That's easily found out. You'd be surprised how easy it is to discover that. Another one that comes to mind is a fairly common practice of kind of upticking the patient's symptoms and diagnosis so that the patient qualifies for admission or qualifies for, uh, for insurance payments. It happens fairly often that a patient coming into a hospital, for example, is described in the admission materials as acutely suicidal, um, we're very worried about this patient, and that's not quite the case. So the patient sometimes comes into the hospital and the doctor and the staff don't treat the patient as seriously as the admission material would indicate. They may not put the patient on uh, one-to-one or close observation uh, or, or continuous observation, rather. Then if a tragedy should occur, it sounds terrible to the jury for the doctor or the staff to have to say, well, he wasn't really as sick as we thought, in which case you lied on the admission sheet, or we think that Q15 is enough for acutely suicidal patients, which is just stupid. Another thing that comes to mind, and I mentioned insurance, is juries are very sensitive to the idea that a patient was discharged uh, prematurely or inappropriately because the insurance wouldn't cover or the administrator needed to keep the length of stay down in the hospital or something like that. Once you accept a patient, either in outpatient or inpatient care, once the patient is accepted, you must continue to treat that patient to the standard of care without regard to their ability to pay. Now, you may need to find a way to refer them elsewhere or something like that, but in the meantime, you need to protect that patient and treat that patient appropriately and be sure that they can be smoothly transitioned, if you will, to some other, some other kind of care. It simply doesn't fly to say, of course we discharged the patient, his insurance was up. The final thing that I would come up with, and I know you're going to discuss this in much more detail in another class, is the idea of contracts for care. Suicidal patients in particular are sometimes given a sort of a contract or promise to sign that they won't hurt themselves. And hospitals and sometimes doctors rely on that as evidence that the person won't kill himself. Uh, they're not worth the paper they're printed on. Uh, finally, a big one that I kind of skipped over is to be sure that appropriate evaluation is done at the appropriate times. When the person's admitted, when the person changes level of care, and before the person is discharged, be sure that there was an adequate assessment, the results of which support that treatment decision or that transfer decision or that discharge decision. Now, speaking of the technical aspects of what we do, every few years uh, there are practice guidelines that are put out by some group of experts or another or a society or some sort of consensus organization. How closely should clinicians practicing out in the community be expected to follow practice guidelines Guidelines are usually a very good thing. I love the word guideline, and whenever I'm involved with an organization, for example, that promulgates practice guidelines or clinic or a hospital, it's real, real important to use that word guideline and not use the word standard. If they use the word standard, then the staff or the doctor pretty much has to adhere to it or be in danger of practicing outside the standard. And practicing outside the standard sounds a lot like practicing outside the, quote, standard of care. 
Practice guidelines are not the standard of care. They are usually consistent with the standard of care, but they don't define the standard of care. Many practice guidelines or hospital policies and procedures, for example, or, or clinic policies and procedures actually exceed the standard of care because they talk about things like best practices and, and what should be done. One is often asked if, if one is questioned about his or her practice, did you follow that guideline, that APA guideline for a number of things? The APA practice guidelines in particular are careful, and they should be, to say that individual cases are individual. In your own work, uh, my understanding is that you have testified in malpractice cases and know your way around that, that procedure. For those who are new to forensic psychiatry and psychiatry and law topics, could you share with us the difference between an expert witness and a fact witness. Sure, and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because it's important. Um, I work with uh, with plaintiffs' lawyers, and I work with defense lawyers. By the way, folks like me, as you probably know, we're almost never retained by the patient or the patient's family directly, but we may be retained by a lawyer on one side or the other. There are two kinds of witnesses in malpractice cases or in, in most cases that I'm familiar with. One is called a fact witness, as you point out, and the other is an expert witness. Fact witnesses are people who are allowed to report to a court what they saw or heard or directly experienced with their own senses. Fact witnesses are not required to be qualified to the court. They merely are reporting what they saw. Um, they're not allowed to give opinions to the court, and they're not allowed to do some other things, such as to rely on what someone else said. That's that, that's that word we hear in all the TV programs, hearsay. Is there ever a time where a physician would serve as a fact witness? Sure. Physicians serve as fact witnesses all the time. Frequently, uh, a defendant in a malpractice case will testify, and he or she will testify about what he did or saw or wrote down. The court may allow that person to give an opinion gee, I thought it was the right thing to do at the time. But in general, the person is there to simply read what was written in the record, to tell what happened, to tell what he or she saw, heard, things like that. An expert witness is someone that a court says is an expert. That's important to know. It's not so much that you went to medical school or, or that you have such and such an honor or such and such an experience. It's that after the judge hears about you, hears a bit about your background and things, the judge agrees that you're expert enough in the field to offer an opinion. Sometimes, or usually that has to do with things like you went to medical school and you had a residency and things like that. It's fairly easy for physicians to qualify as an expert witness. It's important that the two not be mixed. Dr. Reed, you're saying that you shouldn't or you can't serve as an expert witness in your own malpractice trial if one of your own patients has filed suit against you. The two are a conflict of interest, and here's why. As a person's physician, you're required to put that individual's interests above all else. In some states, that's what's called a fiduciary responsibility, and it really does mean above everything else, you have to, to place the patient's interest. In other states, it's still very high, but not quite fiduciary. If you're an expert, your duty is not to the litigant, in this case, a patient or the patient's family. Your duty is to the court, and your duty is one of being objective, 
and being honest. Even though you may be being paid by a lawyer for one side or a lawyer for the other side, the expectation and your legal duty is that you will be objective, you will not lie. You may articulate vigorously for your own opinion, but you're not articulating vigorously for or against the litigant. That's a piece that I think people unfamiliar with psychiatry and law or forensic psychiatry or forensic medicine in general may not know on the surface. It sounds like if someone is the treating physician for a patient and then that patient gets involved in some sort of lawsuit and the attorney for that patient, you know, dangles a carrot in front of the physician, the treating physician, and says, well, if you testify in this case as an expert, then uh, we could pay you extra. That sounds like something that you wouldn't advise. No, and, and it would really happen. Lawyers understand that. A more common example doesn't involve malpractice. If I see a patient who's been injured in a car accident or injured by an explosion or has trauma from war or, or criminal assault, and I treat that patient, then I should not be involved in being an expert witness for that patient in some kind of litigation such as a lawsuit because I can't serve two masters. And the judge knows that, and someone will notify the jury as well that I have a conflict of interest. My first interest must be for the patient. Well, Dr. Reed, is there anything else that you would like our listeners to know about medical malpractice that we haven't covered? Well, let's see. Let me think for just a second here. And you're good at this. <laughs> you're very good at this. And, and you're just excellent at... at uh, well, Bill, you're still being recorded. <laughs> but, and you can, you can play this for the dean. I don't mind if you play this for the dean. I might have to use that. <laughs> uh, one is physicians sometimes ask me and sometimes ask their insurance companies, if there is a tragedy involving someone that I've treated, should I talk to the patient if the patient's still living? Should I talk with the family? Should I console the family? If there's a suicide, should I offer care to the family about the suicide? Physicians should be human and should offer, for example, consideration and solace about what happened. For example, to attend the funeral of a patient who commits suicide, if that seems right, if it feels right, I have no, no problem with that. Documenting those things and documenting why you did them, either in the record or in some other kind of note, is not a bad thing to do. A second thing that comes to mind with regard to, to malpractice is what happens if if you get the call, anytime a lawyer calls a doctor or a resident, the lawyer may say, hey, can I just take a little bit of your time? And, you know, I'm, I'm sure this is a, just a misunderstanding, but why don't you and I talk about it just a minute and, and see if we can kind of resolve this whole thing. That is a real mistake. In general, what one should do is be polite to say that you're not prepared to comment in any way and to hang up the phone and call your facility risk manager or your supervisor if you're a resident or your malpractice carrier. Malpractice carriers love it when doctors call them and say, I was just contacted by a lawyer well before there's any lawsuit. Just to give you a heads up, I didn't do anything wrong or don't think of anything wrong, but the insurance company would like to know as early as possible. They're your friends. It doesn't increase the probability you're going to be sued and it doesn't raise your rates. Well, Dr. Reed, I know I very much appreciate your time. I, I realize how busy you are and how much you've contributed over the years to the education of learners of all stripes in the area of psychiatry and law. Uh, and on behalf of this project, uh, I want to offer my thanks. Well, it's been a joy to talk with you, and I hope that it's helpful for folks. And uh, best of luck. 